seeking God's help and blessing this evening, let's turn in our Bibles to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Beginning in verse 21, let's hear God's Word. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Amen. Let's read as well from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 18. Once again, let's hear God's Word, beginning in verse 18 of Hebrews 12. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse Him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused Him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from Him who speaks from heaven." whose voice then shook the earth, but now He has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. 
May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. Well, with God's help this evening, we seek to consider the blood that speaks. The blood that speaks. Several weeks ago in our sermon series on Paul's epistle to the Romans, we spent some time considering propitiation as that word appears in Romans chapter 3 and verse 25. Speaking of Christ, our Redeemer, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith. And we considered that this is a propitiation through the blood of Christ. And we were reminded in that sermon that a propitiation is at the heart of what Christ as our Redeemer has done for us. Because propitiation deals with the problem of sin. Which despite what you'll find on the television, or on the internet, or social media, it is the most important issue of our day. The greatest threat to humanity today is sin. Because sin brings the wrath of God. And apart from propitiation, you and I lie under that wrath and will lie under it in eternal conscious torment in hell. And so this is at the center of the Gospel. At the heart of what every person on planet earth today needs to hear. Propitiation. When Christ was a propitiation for us on the cross, it means that through His death, He turned away God's wrath. And He procured God's favor and acceptance. And so we are sinners. We're filthy, guilty sinners. God's wrath and displeasure hangs over us by nature. By nature, we're children of wrath. But Christ, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, lived a perfect life as the spotless Lamb of God. Without spot. Without blemish. And He lived in perfect obedience even unto death, bearing our sin, suffering and dying on Calvary's cross, where He endured the infinite, eternal wrath of Almighty God. He cried out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? Of course, we know why God forsook Him. We know why God poured out His wrath upon Him. Because Jesus was taking the place of every person for whom He died. He took the place of every believer throughout history. Old Testament and New. And He satisfied the wrath of God. He appeased God's just and holy and righteous wrath against the sins of His people. And He turned away God's wrath. Just like when Jonah was cast into the sea and the tempest was immediately calmed. When Jesus died, the veil that separated God's presence in the most holy place from the people of God was torn from top to bottom. Jesus not only turned away God's wrath, but He opened a new and living way into the comfortable fellowship of God's presence for every single believer. He secured God's favor and acceptance. Just like when Noah and his family got out of the ark, they sacrificed a clean animal and the aroma of the sacrifice ascended to heaven into the nostrils of God that had flamed with white-hot wrath against the wicked every day, but through that sacrifice pointing ahead to the work of Christ, God's wrath was appeased. And it was a sweet savor 
to the Lord. We saw that this word propitiation is a Greek word that's sometimes used to translate references in the Old Testament to the mercy seat where the blood of the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement was sprinkled as a testimony that the the sacrifice had been offered and that God's mercy and favor was upon His people. More could be said about these things. But just as by way of review, we also considered that this propitiation required the shedding of Christ's blood. Without the shedding of blood, the book of Hebrews tells us, there is no remission of sins. And so if sin and the wrath of God is the greatest threat to humanity today, then we can say with confidence that there is nothing more vital to us today, tonight, than the blood of Jesus Christ by whom the wrath of God is propitiated and turned away and replaced with His infinite and unchangeable favor and acceptance. The blood is crucial. The blood is vital. Without the blood, there is no Gospel. We see in in the record in the New Testament of our Lord's death that there is blood everywhere. He sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was beaten by soldiers, both Jewish and Gentile, beaten with fists and rods, no doubt blood gushing from his face and other parts of his body. He was whipped with the Roman cat of nine tails with embedded sharp pieces of glass and bone in those strands of the whip that would have utterly lacerated his back and perhaps other parts of his body that were caught in the process. Blood, flesh everywhere to the point where uh, Isaiah 53 says that He was marred beyond the appearance of a man. And then there was the crown of thorns placed on His head that no doubt caused blood to be flowing down His face. And there were the nails in His hands and in His feet prophesied centuries beforehand, centuries before crucifixion was even invented by David in Psalm 22. He prophesied this, and so it was. They pierced His hands and His feet and blood flowed. And when, when they wanted to test and, and confirm that He was dead, the soldiers took a spear and they pierced His side and blood and water flowed. So there's no way to appreciate the Gospel of Jesus Christ if we don't appreciate the blood. This was messy. This was gory. This was not just, well, here's a good religious guru who gives us some principles for a better life, the blood, the blood flowed at Calvary. And we saw in that sermon that this was a highly anticipated blood that was shed. All the sacrifices from Abel's sacrifice in the book of Genesis all the way down, even before that when God's no doubt sacrificed uh, an animal and used the skins to clothe Adam and Eve, but all these early sacrifices in Genesis, Noah, Abraham, on down through the ages, all pointing ahead to the shedding of blood. The whole narrative with Abraham offering up his son and a ram in the thicket taking Isaac's place, the Passover, the, the sprinkling of the blood on the doorpost, the Day of Atonement, all of these things pointing ahead to this blood. And it is the precious blood. Peter says we weren't redeemed with gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. Acts 20 tells us that it's the blood of God 
It refers to the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. This is God in the flesh. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. That's what we're talking about here. The precious blood of God in human flesh. It's a blood of sprinkling, which we see in the text that we'll be looking at to some extent tonight. Hebrews 12.24, the blood of sprinkling. That's the blood that speaks. It's a blood of sprinkling, a blood of cleansing, a fountain to cleanse us of all of our uncleanness. It's designed for sinners. It's not designed for the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners Jesus came to save. That's why He shed His blood. If, if you or I don't need the application of the blood of His atoning death, then we have made a mockery of the Gospel and we've missed the point. We are sinners. We are filthy sinners in need of cleansing. The Bible describes our sin as dung, as vomit, as filthy rags that we can't even describe what that word means uh, in, in a polite context. The blood of sprinkling. It's a blood of consecration like the priests who had blood sprinkled on their ears and on their thumbs and on their big toe, all, all on the, the right hand, the right foot, the right ear. Uh, a, a, a blood of consecration that Hebrews 9 tells us equips us to serve the living God. It's a blood of intercession. Christ intercedes for us and is our advocate when we sin. John says in 1 John 2, I'm writing to you so that you don't sin, but if you do sin, he says, and we got into this before, he actually doesn't say but, he says, and if you sin. There's no excuses for sin. And if you sin, you have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, interceding for you and applying His blood afresh to your conscience. But with all that said, this is a blood that speaks. And we stopped short of this several weeks ago, and I want to pick up at this point, especially because we're anticipating the Lord's Supper, God willing, next Sabbath evening. And so as we're preparing for this, we need to hear what the blood is saying. The blood is speaking. Hebrews 12 says the blood is speaking from heaven. In other words, Jesus Christ as the God-man mediator enthroned at God's right hand in heaven, the mediator of the new covenant is, is presenting His finished work before the Father. And when it refers to His blood, it refers to all that He accomplished. The life is in the blood. So His blood points to His death. It points to His life. It points to everything. He ever lives to intercede for us. All of that is being presented as it were before the Father in heaven on behalf of every single believer as He serves that role as our great High Priest in heaven. And that finished work, that blood of sprinkling is a blood that speaks. We're told it speaks a better word than that of Abel. Of course, this reminds us of the narrative of Cain and Abel in the early chapters of the book of Genesis where Abel, by faith, offered up a, a sacrifice of blood atonement. Firstborn or, or the firstlings of his flock in keeping with the example God had set in killing an animal and clothing Adam and Eve in those animal skins as reflecting the first Gospel promise in Genesis 3.16 that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. 
the serpent would strike his heel, but that heel would come crashing down on the serpent's head. And so the Savior would have his blood shed. That's what happens when a serpent bites you in the heel. It's it's blood. And God, no doubt, shed the blood of an animal and clothed Adam and Eve in it and set an example. And Abel, by faith, followed that God-given example of biblical worship which pointed ahead to the sacrifice of Christ to come. Abel did that by faith. And without faith, it was impossible for Abel or his sacrifice to be accepted. But Cain did not come in faith. Cain did not come in obedience to God's example of God-ordained worship. He brought the fruit of the ground. However well-intended it was, he brought the the fruit of his own labors. He brought an offering of his own devices. And it reflected that he did not have a true faith in the sacrifice that was to come. That becomes apparent as you read through the passage and other passages, especially in the book of Jude and others that reflect upon Cain, the way of Cain. And so here we have this narrative where Cain is embittered and envious of his brother Abel, and he kills him. He kills, he murders his brother Abel, He hides the body, he buries him, he tries to hide the whole thing, and God directly confronts him and says, Cain, your your brother's blood cries out from the ground. Now, what do you think that blood was saying? What was the blood of Abel saying? We know the blood of Abel's sacrifice was, was pointing ahead, speaking a message of gospel truth concerning Christ who was yet to come, but what was the blood of Abel himself speaking? as his body uh, lie there in the ground? What was his blood crying out for? Well, it was crying out for justice. And and so does the the blood of every innocent person who is slain unjustly. When we think of the the, the murderous rampage of abortion, there are gallons, uh, hundreds of gallons of blood that have been shed. And whatever they do with the bodies of the infants that they slaughter, whether that's put into medical research, doesn't matter. The blood cries out. If it's not crying out from the ground, it's crying out from somewhere. And it cries out for justice from the judge of all the earth. But we're told here that the blood of sprinkling, the blood that speaks from heaven, even Christ our mediator, it speaks something better. What could that possibly be? Well, it seems clear that in this context, it's being spoken of as a blood of sprinkling. In other words, a blood of merciful cleansing by the salvation that Christ has purchased. Jesus Christ has borne and suffered the punishment of sin. He has satisfied divine justice. And so, His shed blood that you would think would be crying out for justice, you would think that when mankind shed the blood of the Son of God, and then when subsequent generations like you and I, in our natural selves, first came into contact with that Gospel, many of us, and we trampled it underfoot, and we, we disregarded and we shed His blood afresh, as it were, crucifying Him afresh through our unbelief, through our depravity, you would think that His blood would be crying out for justice against us. And in a sense, perhaps we'll get to that. Maybe in a sense that's true. But this is speaking of something far better. This is speaking of the blood of Christ which declares God's 
mercy for every believer who puts their trust in Christ. Everyone who says that it's, it's not me, it's not my righteousness, it's not what I've done. Nothing in my hand I bring, only to that cross of Jesus Christ I cling. Nothing. What does the old hymn say? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For everyone who truly believes that Gospel message, the blood of Jesus Christ in heaven right now is declaring that your sins are forgiven. Is declaring what Christ has done for you. What He has purchased for you. It is declaring a word of mercy. And we see this on the cross. The Lord Jesus Christ reflected this in His words from the cross. And you think of a few of the things that Jesus said from the cross. He said, Father, forgive them. Jesus, even on the cross, had a heart of forgiveness and a desire for sinners to believe on Him and have their sins washed away. Jesus from the cross said to the dying thief who had repented and believed, He said, Assuredly I say to you, today you shall be with Me in paradise. A word of mercy to a thief, to to a sinner, to a criminal. Perhaps someone who was guilty even of murder, certainly of insurrection against the government. He, He speaks a word of mercy. And then of course His victory cry at the end, it is finished. It is finished. A word of mercy. Your sins, though they be many and great, are forgiven. God has, as it were, from a judicial standpoint, forgotten them, and they're cast into the sea. They're blotted out like a thick cloud. They're separated from you as far as the east is from the west. It's not a boomerang that's going to swing back around. And No. It's over. It's finished. Your sins are taken away through the blood of Christ. A word of mercy. Secondly, a word of peace. A word of peace. We live in a day and age where people want peace. They don't have peace. A lot of times they go into the life of various churches seeking peace. And of course, the church is tempted to heal the wound lightly and proclaim peace, peace, where there is no peace. But the blood of Jesus Christ does not heal the wound lightly. It heals the wound rightly. And it declares peace, peace, where there is peace. As Ephesians 2 says, He Himself is our peace. We have been reconciled to God. We who were the seed of the serpent, who were at war with Almighty God, can now say, if God is for me, Who can be against me? God is my God. He's not just the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, but He is my Heavenly Father. And I can pray to Him, Father in Heaven, forgive me my debts even as I forgive my debtors. I have been reconciled. There is true peace through the blood of the cross. Paul points this out in Colossians chapter 1. And verse 20, and by him, it says, to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, 
yet now He has reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in His sight. My dear friends, this blood speaks a word of peace. Again, not healing the wound lightly, but we're told in Isaiah 53, by His stripes, by those lacerations upon His back, by the Roman scourge, by the Roman whip, by His stripes, we are healed. Our relationship to God is healed. Our relationship to one another is healed. There is peace. There is peace. Peace on earth. Goodwill toward men. Peace. We need peace. In fact, the Bible says it's not just peace with God, peace with others, but peace with our circumstances. We struggle with anxiety in our culture today. We're we're probably too busy. We're scurrying around frantically. And we lack peace. We're filled with anxiety. We're stuck in traffic. We're fretting and sweating and, and full of tension and we don't know what to do. The, the blood of Christ says you, you have the peace of God that passes all understanding. Because the blood of Christ has taken away that veil that obstructed the people of God, as it were, from His presence. And it has opened a new and living way into the presence of God through the blood of Christ so that we can be anxious for nothing, but through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make our requests known to God. Why? Because of the blood. Because the blood has made a way of peace. Peace of conscience. Peace of mind. One of my favorite verses is from Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3. This is a comforting word that's made possible by the blood of Jesus Christ. You will keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because He trusts in you. Peace through the blood of the cross. Thirdly, there's a word of comfort and assurance. This, of course, draws our minds back to what we considered when Christ spoke to the dying thief. If there was anyone who would be struggling with assurance, it's a convicted capital criminal hanging on a cross, struggling with the reality of the pain and suffering of the present time, but also of eternity, which is ever nearing for him in his experience. And the Lord Jesus Christ there speaks a word of comfort and assurance. Assuredly, literally in the Greek, Amen, Amen. Verily, verily, I say unto you, you shall be with Me today in paradise. And that's what the blood of Christ does for us. It gives us a word of comfort and assurance. Even as the law of God wounds us, the blood of Christ heals us and comforts us. You see this in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 as one example. The Apostle says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil that is His flesh. Having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, for those that have struggled with personal assurance of salvation, 
one thing you know for certain is that as you're struggling with that, you're lacking boldness to enter into the presence of God. This, this is precisely the thing that you're struggling to do. Maybe you're not afraid to walk into a church and sit down. Maybe you are. But, but whether you're sitting in the church building, in the pews or whatever, you don't have boldness to stand before the Lord. You don't have boldness to come into His presence. To, to, to come before Him, to draw near to Him. Drawing near to the Lord by faith internally, coming before His face, dwelling in His presence, His felt presence, that requires something of assurance. Because otherwise our consciences are riddled with fear and doubt and suspicion of His mercy and grace. But when we have assurance, we can enter boldly before the throne of grace. And we can perceive it as a throne of grace. And, and that word grace is able to so modify and supplement our understanding of the word throne that we're not intimidated to come before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But we can have boldness to enter that most holy presence of God. Those that lack assurance often struggle coming to the Lord's table. Now again, in our day, there's such a meager emphasis upon the presence of God in worship or especially at the Lord's table that perhaps many have not experienced this. But where there is a robust emphasis on the fear of God and upon His holy presence and upon the reality of what is taking place in the Lord's Supper, oftentimes people who struggle with assurance are hesitant and reticent to come forward to the table of the Lord. And how do we deal with that? How do we get to the point where we can draw near and enter and sit down at His table and sup with Him and commune with Him in full assurance of faith? How do we overcome that evil conscience that we find that we struggle with at times? Well, we're told here it's by the blood of Jesus. Hebrews 10.19 what gives us boldness, what gives us assurance, what enables us to go in and, and draw near to the presence of God with full assurance of faith, what enables us to overcome the evil conscience, it is the sprinkling. Our hearts are sprinkled from an evil conscience. And it's by the blood of Jesus. Well, what does that actually mean? Well, what it means is that just thinking of preparing for communion, although you could apply it to any situation, of confessing your sin, that you confess your sin, you come into the presence of God privately in prayer, in, in solitude, and you confess your sin, and you conceptualize in your mind the blood of Christ. You think about it. You look to it. You grab hold of it in, in, in your mind by the hand of faith, and you lay that before the Lord, and you point to that, and you say, Lord, you have been satisfied. It is finished. Whatever sins I have committed, I will not be so arrogant as to think that those sins are more significant than the blood of Your Son, which You offered up for me, for my remission of sins. And you dwell on it self-consciously. Not, not just you know, a prayer, Jesus died for my sins, Amen, or something like that. But consciously dwelling on my sin and the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 
was shed for me. And it's over. It's done. And I am given a promise that the blood of Christ cleanses from all sin. Every sin. Sin 50 years ago for some of us. Sin 10 years ago. Sin yesterday. Sin during this worship service. The blood of Christ cleanses us from every single sin. And it gives us this word of comfort and assurance. And when that word is spoken from heaven, dear believer, you need to listen to it. You need to hear it. Uh, we sometimes think of Hebrews 12.25, this warning against refusing Him who speaks. We sometimes think of that in terms of the person who's living in unrepentant sin and they're not listening to the Word of God and the words of Christ and the declaration of God's law and, and the Gospel and so on. But if you're a believer and you're not claiming the promises that have been purchased for you by the blood of Christ, if you're not hearing that word of mercy and peace and comfort and assurance, and you're not seeking it, and, and when you come face to face with it, you're not believing it, then there's a sense in which this text is warning you as well. Do not refuse Him who speaks. When Jesus comes to you in His Gospel and He says, it is finished, verily, verily, I say to you, you will be with Me in paradise. When He comforts you, when He declares peace through the blood of His cross, when He declares comfort and assurance, and He says, I am your peace, I will bring you into the Holy of Holies, I will stand with you as your advocate and give you boldness to draw near when He says that, you need to believe that. I'm not trying to browbeat people who struggle with assurance, but I am saying you need, to believe, you need to cling to that. You need to take hold of that. Because at the end of the day, if you don't believe that that blood of Christ washes away the sins of every believer, if you don't believe that it washes away your sins, though you would say that you do believe, then you are actually rejecting the voice from heaven and denying the promises of God. And this is a solemn thing. Do not refuse Him who speaks from heaven. Do not refuse the witness of this blood of sprinkling. It's speaking comfort. Receive that. Don't be like Jacob when Joseph, his son at least he thought, was dead. And it says he would not be comforted. He, he would not receive comfort. Uh, there's expressions like that in the Psalms as well. The psalmist went through a difficult time where he just would not be comforted. Be comforted. Receive it. Revel in it. Rejoice in it. It is for you. It is for everyone who puts their trust in Christ. And none who come to Him shall in any wise be cast out. Well, fourthly, it's a word of victory. The blood of Jesus speaks a word of victory. And this is something that's often left out. The Bible as we saw earlier, describes the shedding of Christ's blood in Genesis chapter 3 as the blood that oozes out of a wound from a snake bite. Okay, So the snake bites the heel and the blood is drawn. And then the heel comes down on the head of the serpent. That's a message of victory, if ever there was one. And 
in 1 John, we see something of this again that we, we just often overlook. But 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, these are verses that for a variety of reasons people are at times even obsessed with. You know, what does this verse mean? What does that verse mean? Why is one of the verses here in some Bibles and not others? And, and, and perhaps those kind of debates have their place. I think we can stand by the verses I'm about to read. But listen to verses 6-8 through eight of 1 John 5. It says, This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. Now, people, as I said, they debate these things. You know, is verse 7 something somebody added to the Bible and people go back and forth? Uh, you know, I, I think it's, it's clear to me anyway, this is part of the Scriptures. But, but then people debate the Spirit, the water, and the blood. What's the water and the blood? And what are these things referring to? Well, uh, I guess it would be inappropriate for me to mention this without saying something about that. But I will in a moment. But I want you to notice the context here. Verse 5 precedes this entire section. What is the witness that is being declared? What is the purpose of this witness? What is being witnessed? Why does John speak of the Spirit and the water and the blood? Why does he speak of the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit? Why is he referring to this threefold witness on earth and a threefold witness in heaven? What are they bearing testimony to? But notice verse 5 says part of what they're bearing testimony to is victory. Starting in verse 4, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is He who overcomes the world but He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Then it goes on, this is He who came by water and blood. So the context here, whatever this means, right? Whatever it means, it means this. That there is a robust and undeniable witness to the victory of Jesus Christ and of all who are united to Him by faith through the blood of the cross over the world. And that's something we need to hear. Because we live in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation and we live in the midst of a world that just as could be said in 1 John 5 in John's own day, can be said today that it lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we can be discouraged at the, the lack of progress of the Great Commission in discipling the nations up to this point in history. And in some ways, there's a lot to be encouraged about, of course. And we give thanks to God for the advance of His kingdom. But in other ways, we see so much to be frustrated about as the world seems to be largely deceived and in the darkness of Satan's grip. But John is saying here that through the blood and the water, we have a testimony of Christ's victory and of the victory of all His believing people over the world. 
a victory that will be accomplished. Uh, It has been secured, but it will be increasingly accomplished and advanced throughout history and culminated at the Lord's return. But something about uh, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. What's he saying here? Well, some people have said that this reference to the water and the blood or the blood and the water in this passage is a reference to the tabernacle where you have the altar of blood atonement and then you have the basin of water for cleansing. And this was outside the tabernacle in the court of the tabernacle and the priests would first go to the altar of atoning sacrifice for the blood atonement and then they would cleanse themselves in the bronze basin of water. And so they say, well, this sort of represents the two major aspects of the ceremonial system at the tabernacle and at the temple. Atonement and purification. And then perhaps others say, you see this, this really points to these two main aspects of salvation which are pictured at the tabernacle with the, the altar and the basin. Namely, justification and sanctification. So you have the blood that corresponds to the altar of blood atonement, the sacrifice, and that points us to justification. That Christ has died and risen for us and in Him, in His obedience and sacrifice, we are declared righteous in the sight of God through the blood. And then the water, the basin of water, uh, the water of cleansing, which points us in a way to sanctification and the cleansing from sin, both of which, by the way, justification and sanctification, are applied by the Spirit through union with Christ. The Spirit produces faith by which we take hold of Christ, and so the Spirit unites us to Christ and applies His blood for our justification and applies the water for our sanctification. And and people point this out, and, and perhaps there's something to that. Other people would say, that this possibly could refer to our Lord's baptism, the water, and the cross, which, by the way, uh, in the Gospels at one point, He refers to as something of a baptism. And so you, you have the baptism of water and the baptism of blood. You have the water and the blood. Baptism at the Jordan River and the cross of Calvary. And then still other people say, well, as long as we're talking about bearing witness and testimony, don't you recall at the end of John's Gospel where John is standing there at the cross and they pierce the Lord's side and out comes blood and water and then he says that, that he solemnly testifies and bears witness that this is the case, that blood and water flowed out of the side of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, well perhaps... Some of these things, perhaps a combination of these things, are in view here. But when you look at what John is saying specifically in verse 6, in seeking to bolster this claim of victory in the previous verses, he makes the point that Jesus came by water and blood, not only by water, but by water and blood. You see that? So, John is concerned that some people are going to say, well, Jesus came by water, but not by blood. And so he makes it a point to say, this Jesus has gained the victory and it is shown forth not just in the water, 
but in the blood. Again, is he dealing with Gnostic heretics who are, who are saying, well, Jesus was anointed as a great teacher, but uh, they deny that he was fully human and experienced death and shed his blood at the cross. It, it's difficult to say, but one thing we can say for sure is that the blood is vital. It's essential. Without the shed blood of Christ, there is no victory. And this is what the people of Jesus' own day struggled so greatly to understand. They were looking for a victorious king. They were looking for this great liberator who would overturn the pagan cultures that were oppressing them. He was, they were looking for someone who would be this great earthly king, wielding a scepter and dashing the nations to pieces. They were not looking for the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. But we have no further to look than Psalm 22 to see that this is a false dichotomy. The Lord Jesus Christ has redeemed His people as a propitiation for their sins at the cross. That's the first half of Psalm 22. But now that He has finished the work, He enters into His glory, into His exaltation as the King of kings, as the Lord of lords. He has inherited the nations. He sends forth the scepter of His great commission to disciple the nations. And it is His blood, as it were. I mean, in, in what is it? Cyprian said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that's true. But in a way, it's the blood of Christ that is the seed of the church. And it's His victory at the cross that purchases His victory throughout the ages of human history and beyond. So this blood bears witness that Christ and His people shall overcome the world. Though it may seem as an unfounded claim, it may seem that you know, living in a fairy tale. No. The blood of Christ has been shed. Christ is the heir of the nations. And He will take possession of His inheritance through the Gospel and through the work of the Holy Spirit. And you see something of this in the book of Revelation. How is it that especially the early Christians were able to overcome Roman persecution? How is it that Christians throughout the world who are being threatened, who are being intimidated, that, that uh, are, are having their blood shed and they're being surveilled and their worship services are being broken up by police officers or, or soldiers, how is it that persecuted saints overcome the devil and the world? Well, Revelation 12, verse 11 says they overcame the devil by the blood of the Lamb. So the blood of Christ is not weakness, it is strength. He's purchased. He's, he's saved. He's done everything that is necessary. And now the battle has been won. Goliath has been beheaded. And now we're just chasing down the Philistines. It doesn't feel like that, but again, are you going to go by your feelings or are you going to believe the Word of God? Perhaps the reason that we're not seeing, uh, you know, we're, we're not apprehending as many Philistines as we would like is because we've stopped believing it. They overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. It's a word of victory. It's also a word of warning. This blood speaks a word of solemn warning. I mentioned that it does urge us to believe its message in terms of mercy and grace. 
and that its primary message is one of mercy and peace and comfort and assurance, but to whom much is given, much is required. When this blood speaks a message of gospel grace, when it says that, as it were, Jesus says, I am the door, whoever enters shall be saved. And and if you believe on Me, I'll give you salvation and I will turn away none that come unto Me. When When the blood of Christ proclaims that kind of message, there are responsibilities that go along with that privilege of hearing that Gospel. There is something of a word of warning and we see that throughout the book of Hebrews. We also see it in the Gospels. You remember when the Jews, many of them, were crying out at the praetorium outside of Pilate's judgment hall. They were crying out, crucify Him, crucify Him. May His blood be upon us and our children. What they said there was absolutely true of every person who rejects the Gospel. Every person who will not hear and receive this message of comfort and mercy through the Lord Jesus Christ and His finished work. Revelation 1.7 says that when Christ returns, all those who pierced Him will look upon Him. And I think most commentators are right to say that's not limited to the Jews who literally pierced Him or to the Romans who literally pierced Him, but it includes all of whom Hebrews 6.6 6 says, crucify afresh the Son of God. My dear friend, if you refuse to believe this word of gospel mercy and grace, if you refuse to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, understand you are no different. Your voice is echoing like those Jews of old. May His blood be upon us and our children. If you will not have the blood of sprinkling upon yourself for your salvation, you'll have the blood of Christ upon you for judgment. There is a warning. And we need to take stock of that. Finally, it's a word of humility. And isn't that what we need? If we think about our society, if we think about our own hearts, it's very easy. It's very easy for us to become proud, to become puffed up, to compare ourselves. There's no shortage of people in the world. If we want to be selective, we can find people to compare ourselves to. And I'm better than her, or she's better than him, and all of this. Paul says, if you measure or compare yourselves with yourselves, you are not wise. And yet we continue to do it. And so I would be remiss if I didn't, from time to time, seek to to bring a word of humility. And that's what the blood of Christ does for us this evening in conclusion. It reminds us the reason why this this precious blood of the Son of God had to be shed. Now, think about whose blood was shed at Calvary. This is the blood of the altogether lovely one, the Lord Jesus Christ, the fairest among 10,000, the brightness of the Father's glory, the express image of His person, the firstborn over all creation, most beautiful of men, your lips overflow with grace. We sing in Psalm 45. This is our bridegroom. This is our king, our priest, and our prophet. This is the fullness of the Godhead dwelling bodily. This is the one of whom it is said that 
the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is seen in His face, Emmanuel. For a moment, just forget about the the blood. Just for a moment. And just think about the Savior. And what an amazing privilege it is for humanity to be created in the image of God, but also to have God Himself taking on humanity such that He is flesh of our flesh and bone of our bone, and that one day we will see Him face to face. And many people in this world 2,000 years ago saw Him face to face. They looked God in the eyes through His humanity. God embraced them. God wept tears over them. God in the flesh. There is nothing that any other religion or worldview that, that, that they could even make up that would be more beautiful and more significant and more precious than Emmanuel, God, with us. We by nature, well, as Christians in our, in our new nature, we desire Him. We desire to be with Him. We desire to spend time with Him, to hear His voice, to speak with Him, to commune with Him. We desire to have a relationship with God in the flesh. What a unique, amazing blessing that is. And now we have to come to grips with the blood that He was marred beyond the appearance of a human being. He was put through something that, dear believer, you and I will never experience. The pain, the suffering, the torment, physically, spiritually, from a human standpoint, from a demonic standpoint, from a divine standpoint, the full force of God's infinite and eternal wrath coming down upon this beloved one. Why did it happen? It happened because I sinned and you sinned. And we'll never understand the cross and appreciate it until we understand that He did it for us. Is it a testimony to how much God loves us? Absolutely. But is it a testimony to how vile and wicked we are by nature and and how evil our sins are? Every single one of them. Absolutely, it does that as well. 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25, who Himself bore our sins in His own body on the tree that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray and have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What infinite, amazing love that the shepherd and overseer of our souls would seek and save His lost sheep, you and I, dear believer, that that He would seek us, that He would save us, though we are going astray, though we still go astray, though we go astray, in some sense, every single day, falling short of His glory, not listening to the voice of our shepherd, not following Him as we ought. And yet, He is patient. He seeks us. He saves us. He died for us. He bore every one of our sins, past, present, and future, in His own body on the tree. And He did it so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. If that is not a motive to obey God's law, if that is not a motive, if that doesn't enable us to say with John that His law is not burdensome, if that doesn't enable us to say with James 
that His law is a law of liberty, then I give up. Because that's it. That's the Gospel. That's what we hold dear. That is the word of humility that the Gospel of Jesus Christ brings and that the blood speaks to our souls. How dare you or I or any Christian puff themselves up? How dare any of us boast in ourselves? How dare we when our sins pierced and crucified the Lord of glory? Our sins made that necessary. Our sins are the reason for the shedding of the blood of the Son of God. We are but dust and ashes. Uh, We are but as the nails that pierced Him. Let us humble ourselves with that thought. Let's pray. Gracious God, how much we need to hear the blood that speaks from heaven. We pray that even as Christ declares His Word through this passage, that Your Holy Spirit would apply to us through it the blood and the water. Forgive us. Cleanse us. Sanctify us. That we may be Your faithful and humble believing people. That we may, through the Lord Jesus Christ and His utter humiliation, that we may be humbled. That we may be the meek who victoriously inherit the earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.